This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDR. How do you like that? The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Correct, correct, correct. Good luck. Are you sitting comfortably? Well, put your seatbelts on because you're in for a howling ride. Because I am the narrator, the voice that guides the blind. Following up with your ears, be your mind, and allow me to take you back on four feet time. Explain the significance of things you may think insignificant now, but won't further down the line. Good morning and welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour, where we go to the heart of things and explore new ideas and new ways of seeing in this wondrous and crazy world we live in. Today, a wonderful and fascinating presentation by Becca Tarnas, an amazing young woman doing her doctoral study at the California Institute of Integral Studies. This presentation is titled The Red Book and the Red Book, Carl Jung, J.R.R. Tolkien, and the Convergence of Images. Welcome, everyone. Tonight, I have the privilege of introducing Becca Tarnas. She is a doctoral student at the brand new Ecology, Spirituality, and Religion program here at CIS. Becca wears many hats. She's a scholar, a writer, a blogger, a storyteller, a painter, an archetypal ecologist. Tonight, she is going to courageously lead us on a journey into the imagination as seen through the lens of two of perhaps the most important human beings to walk the face of the earth in the last century, Carl Jung and J.R.R. Tolkien. Becca's passion for the power of story and of imagination has had a lasting impact on me. I wanted to quote a couple sentences from an essay she wrote last semester for a course on ecology where she was digging into Tolkien's Lord of the Rings trilogy to try to get at how the symbols and the characters and the story that he created might be relevant to the ecological crisis. There's something really profound here that she said that I wanted to bring out here as a segue into her talk. She says, Great stories become symbols as they are encountered again and again by successive generations, as they are read in the context of currently unfolding lives. This is the profound part. Stories become a part of the ecology in which they are told, participating in shaping the cultural landscape and in being reshaped by it as well. 
The reason I find Becca's work so profound is that she sees story and the imagination as part of the ecosystems within which we're embedded, and that she sees the way in which the stories we tell have the power to transform the way we lead our lives. So she's made very clear this power of story, but I think she's also succeeded in showing me how fragile story can be and how easily we can lose our way when the thread of meaningful images becomes lost or is distorted and confused. And so I think her work is really important right now in the midst of this planetary crisis, because as we all know, it's primarily, I would argue, and Becca and most of us probably agree, it's a crisis of story. And to make meaning effectively, I think we need to re-engage with the stories that our culture has cherished and maybe even tell new stories. And in order to make meaning effectively, we have to journey into the realm of imagination. And this is a realm, as Tolkien says, that's full of both promise and peril. But lucky for us, we have one of the most well-traveled imaginal guides that I have yet met to lead us into that realm tonight. So please join me in welcoming Becca Tarnas. Thank you all so much for coming. And it feels really amazing and scary and wonderful to be up here and actually giving my own forum presentation. So thank you all for showing up and hearing what strange things I have to say tonight. So I titled this talk, The Red Book and the Red Book, Young Tolkien and the Convergence of Image or Images. And I actually came up with the title last fall at Esalen and I was like, I have no idea what this is about, but I want to find out. So the title was there first. And before I even begin, I wanted to give a, as a bookend, opening bookend to this talk, two quotes, one by Jung and one by Tolkien. And Jung said in the Red Book, very hard to pick an opening quote from the Red Book. It is so rich, so full of images and symbol and incredible, beautiful words. But this one stood out. And he said, to give birth to the ancient in a new time is creation. The task is to give birth to the old in a new time. And in answering dialogue to that, Tolkien wrote in his essay on fairy stories, fantasy remains a human right. We make in our measure and in our derivative mode because we are made and not only made, but made in the image and likeness of a maker. So I wanted to set that first, just to kind of carry what this talk, what this journey, hopefully, that we'll be going on together is about. So why did I even start to undertake this project? I'm doing it as an independent study, and it may seem kind of unusual. But when I first heard of Jung's Red Book, actually right in the year it was being published, it made me think of something else. And I, for years, have been a devotee of J.R.R. Tolkien's. Ever since I was nine years old, and I had The Hobbit read to me by my Waldorf grade school teacher, and names like Dale and Mirkwood and Middle Earth stood out in a way that I felt, I've been here before. I know this. Why do I know this? And it has been a part of my life ever since. It's the lens that I really see everything with. So when I heard that Jung had a red book, I thought, Tolkien has a red book. And when I saw Jung's red book, 
and started looking through the pages, I couldn't believe it because it looked like how I imagined from the written descriptions Tolkien's Red Book to look. It had black calligraphy letters and it was illustrated, black and red letters, and it looked like a medieval manuscript. So really what this project is, is just seeing a similarity and following an intuition. And I thought, you know what, there might be nothing here, but I'm going to read these together. I'm going to try and read them simultaneously and see if something jumps out. And I panicked many times thinking, there is nothing here. <laughs> there will be no correlations. I will find nothing to stand up here and present to you. But to my great joy, I was surprised. And I'll say to begin with, I'm not an expert on Jung. I think probably almost all of you here have read more Jung than I have. So I'm not coming to this project having a major background in Jung's work. In many ways, I feel like I have come to Jung backwards, that I am starting with the last thing published but really, I'm starting at the beginning. I'm starting with the first work that was coming through him. So I'm just going to say that from the beginning, that I don't have a grasp on the language of depth psychology. I am an explorer of imagination, and so I am reading Jung through that lens. And I very much hope to learn from all of you in the dialogue portion of the evening. So... What do these two men have in common? Besides the fact that they both like pipe tobacco. Jung, on the one hand, he's one of the founders of depth psychology. He's an explorer of the unconscious, of the archetypal, of synchronicity. He's from Switzerland. Tolkien, he's English. He's a philologist. He's the author of The Lord of the Rings. In many ways, he's the founder of the genre of fantasy literature. Now from that description, there may not be a whole lot of common ground between them. But there have been Jungian analyses done of Tolkien's work. There's a book called The Individuated Hobbit, for example. <laughs> this is something that, not knowing too much about depth psychology and psychoanalysis, Tolkien was rather against. And he very much was against the idea of learning about his works by looking at his biography. But there haven't been that many, or maybe even, well, there may be one, Tolkienian analysis of Jung. And so I'm going to try and read them through each other. Now, if Tolkien knew that Jung had had a red book, maybe he would have been more open to the possibility. But mm -hmm. as far as I know, he did not know that. <laughs> so we're going to be embarking on a journey together. I'm not really going to be able to stand here and say, I know this, I've discovered these facts, I can unfold them for you in this linear manner. Rather, we're going to be exploring art, images, language, story, and looking for correlations, looking for synchronicities between the two. And as part of bringing the work of these two men into dialogue with each other, I'm actually going to be reading a lot of quotes, probably more than I would in a talk of this length just because their language carries so much and speaks so much to each other that I wanted to be able to use their original words. So, what is Tolkien's Red Book? Besides the fact that my particular copy is red and wonderful. Fortunately, he describes what the Red Book is in the prologue to The Lord of the Rings, 
in a section called Note on the Shire Records. He says, this account, meaning what I'm holding in my hands, this story, this account of the end of the Third Age is drawn mainly from the Red Book of Westmarch. That most important source for the history of the War of the Ring was so-called because it was long preserved at Undertowers, the home of the Fairbairns Wardens of the Westmarch. It was in origin Bilbo's private diary, which he took with him to Rivendell. Frodo brought it back to the Shire, together with many loose leaves of notes, and during Shire Year, or Shire Reckoning 1420, he nearly filled its pages with his account of the war. But annexed to it and preserved with it, probably in a single red case, there were three large volumes bound in red leather that Bilbo gave to him as a parting gift. Interestingly, there are three books in Jung's. The whole thing's Liber Novus, so the first is Liber Primus, then Liber Secundus, and the Scrutinies. One, two, three. One, two, three. Okay, but that's simple stuff. As you can see, though, in that prologue, Tolkien didn't see himself as a fiction writer. He saw himself as a translator, not as an inventor, but someone who was discovering something that was presenting found material and translating it. And that, in many ways, is important for what both Jung and Tolkien are doing with this. So then the next synchronicity that I came across. Jung's Red Book period was from 1913. His visions began in 1913 through 1930. But the primary time when visions were moving through him, that he was in the process of what he called active imagination, of working with fantasy, was from 1913 to 1917. It so happens that around 1912-1913, Tolkien, who's much younger than Jung, was creating a little book that didn't have any writing in it, but he called it the Book of Ishness. And about 1914, he started writing his first mythology, the beginning of his mythology, which he at that time called the Book of Lost Tales. And we'll be going into the Book of Ishness shortly, but it's all images. And there are no explanations whatsoever. So we're kind of going to be swimming through that shortly. But it seems that at the same time, through both of these men, were coming powerful imaginal images that they then spent the next 40 to 45 years of their lives unpacking in their life's work. For Jung, it was through his work in depth psychology. For Tolkien, it was writing down his stories and eventually producing The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. Jung writes of this period, The years when I was pursuing my inner images were the most important in my life. In them, everything essential was decided. It all began then. The later details are only supplements and clarifications of the material that burst forth from the unconscious and at first swamped me. It was the prima materia for a lifetime's work. So this period I've just mentioned, there is a rather interesting astrological correlation with it. And I'll say now that I'm not going to be going that much into astrology tonight, but I do want to just mention this now. So from 1899 until 1918, there was an opposition of the planets Uranus and Neptune. Uranus having to do with awakening, renewal, liberation, revolution, liberation. Neptune having to do with spirituality and soul, the transcendent image, imagination. And so when you bring these together, it was a period of the culture searching for spiritual renewal. And it so happened that Jung and Tolkien weren't the only people at this time having fantasy visions and writing them and painting them. It was coming through many people. 
So I'm really just focusing on these two, even though this was happening widely, and including Tony Wolf, who was experiencing streams of fantasy visions and told Jung about them. So Tolkien and Jung's Red Book periods from 1913 to 1918, really, when the visions were coming through, took place under the Uranus-Neptune opposition. Now, in the 1950s, there was a Uranus-Neptune square. The 1950s happened to be when The Lord of the Rings was published, 1954 and 1955. And then in 1957, under the same Uranus-Neptune square, Jung began writing his autobiography, or kind of co-writing it, Memories, Dreams, Reflections. So that was coming through. And then the next quadrature relationship between Uranus and Neptune was in the 1990s, and there was a conjunction. And it so happened all through the 1990s was when the films of The Lord of the Rings were being made. And it was when the decision to publish Jung's Red Book after all this time was made. So you can see, marking each one, these significant moments related to these two men's work. So I'm going to touch on that now. We can discuss it later. But I want to focus more on even more specific details of how the archetypal was coming through these two men. So a little on Jung's biography. He felt like he was living in two centuries. He felt like he had two personalities. He described them as his number one and his number two. Number one, it lived in the current time. As he was becoming aware of this, he was quite young. So number one was a schoolboy with problems like not understanding algebra, wrestling with his relationship with his friends and how to be a part of the world. Number two was an old man living in the 18th century, but he also felt that number two was connected to the Middle Ages, and he felt that number two lived in God's world, in an eternal world. Now, Tolkien also felt as though he were living in the wrong time. He was drawn only to pre-Chaucerian literature. He understood ancient languages as if they were his own, such as Anglo-Saxon, Gothic, Old Icelandic, and several others. He actually spoke 19 languages. Tolkien's biographer said of him, he has a strange voice, deep but without resonance, entirely English but with some quality in it that I cannot define, as if he had come from another age or civilization. Back to Jung, he wrote in Memories, Dreams, Reflections that besides personality number one's world, there existed another realm, like a temple in which anyone who entered was transformed and suddenly overpowered by a vision of the whole cosmos so that he could only marvel and admire, forgetful of himself, hear nothing separated man from God. Indeed, it was as though the human mind looked down upon creation simultaneously with God. And that quote made me think of a quote from Tolkien's in his essay on fairy stories, where he says, the magic of fairy, and in this case fairy is referring to the realm of fairy, F-A-E-R-I-E. The magic of fairy is not an end in itself, its virtue is in its operations. Among these are the satisfaction of certain primordial human desires. One of these desires is to survey the depths of space and time. Another is to hold communion with other living things. So we'll leave that for the moment and start moving toward their artwork. Neither one defined themselves as a visual artist, but they both began their artistic careers, you could say, by painting and drawing landscapes, what they saw around them. And then for both of them, there was an abrupt move from drawing representational landscapes to doing abstract or semi-figurative or imaginal works 
basically from the 19-teens onward. And another thing that stood out to me about this, looking at the very beginning of their visionary periods, was what seems to be a shared vision. I'll tell Jung's first. On October 17th of 1913, he had a vision, and I'll, I'll read exactly how he wrote about it. In October, while I was alone on a journey, I was suddenly seized by an overpowering vision. I saw a monstrous flood covering all the northern and low-lying lands between the North Sea and the Alps. I saw the mighty yellow waves, the floating rubble of civilization, and the drowned bodies of uncounted thousands. Then the whole sea turned to blood. And two weeks later, he had the vision again, and this time it was accompanied by a voice that was saying, Look at it well. It is wholly real, and it will be so. You cannot doubt it. It so happened that visions of what he called the Great Wave also came to Tolkien, both while he was awake and while he was sleeping, beginning around age seven and continuing for much of his life. He called it his Atlantis haunting. And the way he describes it, he wrote in one letter, this legend or myth or dim memory of some ancient history has always troubled me. In sleep, I had the dreadful dream of the ineluctable wave, either coming out of the quiet sea or coming in towering over the green inlands. It still occurs occasionally, though now exercised by writing about it. It always ends by surrender, and I wake gasping out of deep water. So Jung came to find that his vision was prophetic of World War I. And being younger than, and not Swiss, Tolkien actually fought in that war and was deeply impacted by it. However, before Jung could know that these visions were related to the war, he was experiencing them all internally and thought perhaps he was going crazy. And before the war broke out, several months before, on December 12th, he had what he describes as his first vision, and it's the first vision that's really laid out in the Red Book. And I'll read it from Memories, Dreams, Reflections. He said, it was during Advent of the year 1913, December 12th to be exact, that I resolved upon the decisive step. I was sitting at my desk once more thinking over my fears. Then I let myself drop. Suddenly it was as though the ground literally gave way beneath my feet and I plunged down into dark depths. I could not fend off a feeling of panic, but then abruptly, at not too great a depth, I landed on my feet in a soft, sticky mass. I felt great relief, although I was apparently in complete darkness. After a while, my eyes grew accustomed to the gloom, which was rather like a deep twilight. Before me was the entrance to a dark cave, in which stood a dwarf with a leathery skin, as if he were mummified. I squeezed past him through the narrow entrance and waded knee-deep through icy water to the other end of the cave where, on a projecting rock, I saw a glowing red crystal. I grasped the stone, lifted it, and discovered a hollow underneath. At first I could make out nothing, but then I saw that there was running water. In it a corpse floated by, a youth with blonde hair and a wound in his head. He was followed by a gigantic black scarab and then by a red newborn sun. The sun was rising out of the depths of the water. Dazzled by the light, I wanted to replace the stone upon the opening, but then a fluid welled out. It was blood. A thick jet of it leaped up and I felt nauseated. It seemed to me that the blood continued to spurt for an unendurably long time. At last it ceased, and the vision came to an end. Pretty dramatic entryway into this realm. So, right about that time, in this book of Ishness that I mentioned, Tolkien did a drawing. This is one of the very first visionary drawings. It's called Before. 
And oddly, that is what I sort of picture when I read Jung's description. But there's no description at all of what this meant to Tolkien. People have guessed about it. Lance Owens writes that it's primitive, it's quick, a statement of the deep dream world. The Tolkien scholar Verlin Flieger talks about the title before. She says it conveys the dual notions of standing in front of and awaiting or anticipating, and that the sketch is remarkable for its mood, which conveys both foreboding, the dark corridor, and hope, the lighted doorway. I actually don't really find the doorway all that hopeful looking, something about the red light, but that's my interpretation that it seems far more sinister. This is followed by another painting, or another drawing called Afterwards, which seems to be coming through on the other side. Again, no explanation for what that means. Throughout Tolkien's work, there are descriptions of many underground descents, many journeys that have echoes in relationship to the one I just read of Jung's. There's the journey in Fellowship of the Ring through Moria, where Gandalf is lost. There's the journey through Shelob's tunnel, the encounter with the giant spider, which reminds me of the giant scarab that Jung describes. There's the paths of the dead that Aragorn passes through underground, where he encounters a host of the dead. And in the Red Book, Jung also encounters a host of the dead, and the descriptions are oddly similar. There's the encounter in The Hobbit that Bilbo makes underground under the mountains with Gollum, who, like in Jung's description, is on an island in the middle of a body of water where he has the one ring, just like that one jewel is on an island in a body of water. And then, of course, there's the encounter in The Hobbit with Smog, the dragon, so the encounter in the underworld with the dragon. So just to explore a little more of this book of Ishness with its strange title, he moved from drawing what he saw Tolkien did on the outside to what he saw on the inside, and he labeled these his earliest Ishnesses. And these were symbolic or abstract images that came from the imagination. And he did about 20 visionary paintings. He started in the summer of 1913. And I could not get hold of all of them. They are somewhere in an envelope in the Bodleian Library. And one day I would love to go and dig those out. But I have what I could find. Interestingly, in 1911, Tolkien, who didn't travel all that much, went to Switzerland. And I don't know how close he would have been to Jung at that time, but he went on a walking tour through the mountains, and the mountains had a major impact on him. In many ways, the mountains had a major impact on Jung as well. And while in Switzerland, Tolkien came across this drawing by J. Madlener der Berggeist, the mountain spirit. And he later wrote on the back, that this was the origin of Gandalf, or his image of Gandalf, the wizard. And in the Book of Ishness, he did this funny little drawing called Eeriness. And it's kind of hard to see, but again, no interpretation. But it looks like a wizard walking down a path. Now this is one of my probably most favorite Ishnesses. It's called The End of the World. It's pretty remarkable. So. On the one hand, this could be a rather depressing image of someone going off a cliff. But as the Tolkien scholar and Jungian Lance Owens says, that fellow has stepped and he is not falling. He is walking into the sun, into a moon and into stars. And it seems like this is a representation of what Tolkien was entering into, that he has stepped into an imaginal world that is going to carry him off of that cliff of reality and into something much grander. 
just to take you through some other ishnesses. We have wickedness, we have thought, and we have under tenishness. You can see uh, he got the term ishness from these strange little titles that he'd come up with. Other ishnesses were called silent, enormous and immense, firelight magic, grown up ishness, <laughs> someone else male, someone else female, sleep, convention, a wish, Xanadu, based on Coleridge's poem, other people, and the back of beyond. And I would dearly love to see these. Now it happens that much of Jung's fantasy material came to him not only as images, but also as runes. And here is yet another correlation, because Tolkien, a philologist, and even before he became a professional philologist, had started inventing languages. And he was hearing words in his mind. He called them ghost words. And he would hear them in many ways how other people hear music. And he had a desire to compose languages in the way that other people compose symphonies. So in the way that Mozart heard full melodies, Tolkien heard languages. And they would come through and he would write them down and he would niggle with them and constantly refine them to try and get them into exactly what he felt he had heard. As Lance Owen says, Tolkien had an ear for music in the form and flow of language. And in Fellowship of the Ring, he gives to Frodo an experience that I think captures maybe what was happening for him when he was hearing these words. Frodo is in the Hall of Fire in Rivendell and he's hearing Elvish singing and he doesn't understand it. But what happens to him is this. At first, the beauty of the melodies and of the interwoven words in elven tongues, even though he understood them little, held him in a spell as soon as he began to attend to them. Almost it seemed that the words took shape and visions of far lands and bright things that he had never yet imagined opened out before him. And the firelit hall became like a golden mist above seas of foam that sighed upon the margins of the world. Then the enchantment became more and more dreamlike until he felt that an endless river of swelling gold and silver was flowing over him, too multitudinous for its pattern to be comprehended. It became part of the throbbing air about him and it drenched and drowned him. Swiftly he sank under its shining weight into a deep realm of sleep. I think that Tolkien may have been embedding his own experience there into Frodo's experience. And in the introduction to Jung's Red Book, the author of the introduction writes, the task before Jung was to find a language rather than use one ready at hand. So it seems that Jung also was searching for a new language, inventing a new language to express what was coming through him. So. At this time, in 1913, Tolkien encountered a word, and this in many ways was the beginning of the birthing of his mythology. And this word was Erendel, and he found it in an Anglo-Saxon poem. Just two lines that were, and I don't know how to pronounce Anglo-Saxon, so I will do my best. Eala Erendel, Engla Beartast, offer Middengerd, Monum Sended. Hail Erendel, brightest of angels, above the middle earth sent unto men. You can hear Middle Earth in there, and then this name, Erendil. And Tolkien wrote afterwards, I felt a curious thrill, as if something had stirred in me, half wakened from sleep. There was something very remote and strange and beautiful behind those words, if I could grasp it, far beyond ancient English. So in the summer of 1914, just before World War I broke out, he wrote this poem, and it was the first poem that he wrote that 
eventually started turning into his mythology of Middle-earth, and it's called The Voyage of Erendel, the Evening Star. Erendel sprang up from the ocean's cup in the gloom of the mid-world's rim, from the door of night as a ray of light leapt over the twilight brim, and launching his bark like a silver spark from the golden fading sand, down the sunlit breath of day's fiery death, he sped from Westerland. Tolkien had this instinct when he read those lines about Erendel that Erendel was actually a star. He was the morning and evening star, or what we here in this realm call Venus. And I believe that this was just Tolkien's understanding of it. He wasn't getting that from anywhere else. And so this poem, it's describing a journey across the night sky when a single light enters into darkness and is wandering through the long night, wandering west. And in the west for Tolkien, that was where the fairy realm existed. That was where the imaginal was. And this poem he showed to his friend G.B. Smith, who liked it, but asked him what it was really about. And Tolkien's response was, I don't know. I'll try to find out. Not, I'll make it up. I'll try to find out. And in reference to this poem, I was struck by something that Jung had inscribed on the cornerstone of his tower at Bollingen. He had many things inscribed on the stone, but one is a line that is, This is Telesphoros, who roams through the dark regions of this cosmos and glows like a star out of the depths. He points the way to the gates of the sun and to the land of dreams. So there's yet another maybe simple correlation. So getting into the red book itself, Jung's red book. Jung maintained a fidelity to the event that what he was writing was not to be mistaken for fiction. The Liber Novus, the red book, it depicts the rebirth of God in the soul, it depicts Jung's descent into hell, and it is an attempt to shape an individual cosmology. Now, Tolkien's own red book was also to shape an individual cosmology and cosmogony to create a myth from its beginning. And he wanted to create a world that contained the God that he loved and worshipped. He was a Roman Catholic. But he didn't depict Roman Catholicism within his world. Rather, it's within the ethics. It's almost like it's holding it, it's cradling it. And within this world, he too, Tolkien also depicted a descent into hell into Mordor and into worse places as well in others of his stories. The language that the Red Book is written, as Jung put it, he said, first I formulated the things as I had observed them, usually in high-flown language, which he really didn't like, for that corresponds to the style of the archetypes. Archetypes speak the language of high rhetoric, even of bombast. And the language of the Silmarillion also has that very high language, and it's actually what makes it really difficult for a lot of people to read, and why it was such a disappointment when it came out in 77 and people were hoping for a sequel to Lord of the Rings, and instead they felt like they were reading the Old Testament. But that is the language that was coming through Tolkien, and you can actually see the progression in the Lord of the Rings as well, when you realize this wasn't a children's story, and the language in the first few chapters, which is very simple and Hobbit-like, begins to mature all the way up through the end when it is using this very high-flown grand language. So what is a fantasy? I will define that first through Jung's definition. It's a flow or aggregate of images and ideas in the unconscious psyche that constitutes its most characteristic activity. And fantasy is to be distinguished from thought or cognition. 
Active fantasies, on the other hand, do require assistance from the ego for them to emerge into consciousness. And in many ways, that's what the Red Book is composed of, of these active imaginings. When that occurs, we have a fusion of the conscious and unconscious areas of the psyche, an expression of the psychological unity of the person. And in a dictionary of Jungian terms, they say, well, this is confusing. We actually have two disparate definitions of fantasy. On the one hand, it's that fantasies are different and separate from external reality. And on the other hand, they're linking inner and outer worlds. And actually, in reading that through Tolkien's experiences, I don't see those as disparate definitions. I see them as something that is linking by being separate and holding them together in a way. In the introduction to the Red Book, the author writes, Jung held that the significance of these fantasies was due to the fact that they stemmed from the mythopoic imagination, which was missing in the present rational age. So that's Jung's definition of fantasy. And now for Tolkien's definition of fantasy, which he writes about in his essay on fairy stories. He describes fantasy as the making or glimpsing of other worlds that is at the heart of the desire of fairy. He says that fantasy is a natural human activity. It certainly does not destroy or even insult reason. And it does not either blunt the appetite for nor obscure the perception of scientific verity. Fantasy is a rational, not an irrational activity. So keeping that in mind, let's start to dive into the images of the Red Book. And first, I just want to explore these images and not necessarily analyze them, but instead what I was doing was finding similarities between the two men's artworks. So you have dragons. Jung's dragon, Tolkien's dragon. And of course, dragons are archetypal. They are something that one might encounter in an imaginal realm. They had these interesting drawings of trees. Tolkien would draw this tree, which he called the Tree of Amalian, regularly. This particular one's from August of 1928, but whenever he felt this urge, he would just start drawing this tree. And you can see throughout Jung's Red Book, there are many different beautiful images of trees. Jung writes, Trees in particular were mysterious and seemed to me direct embodiments of the incomprehensible meaning of life. For that reason, the woods were the place where I felt closest to its deepest meaning and to its awe-inspiring workings. Trees were beloved and even sacred to Tolkien. He liked most of all to be with trees. He would like to climb them, to lean on them, even to talk to them. For those familiar with his works, of course, he brings in Ents, who are walking, talking trees, tree shepherds. And for Tolkien, the entrance to fairy, to the realm of imagination, lay not underground as it is in many other fairy tales, but actually through the woods. And of course, there's significant trees in many mythologies, the world tree, which you can see depicted in that, this last image of Jung's. And for Tolkien also, he had not one world tree, but two world trees, the two trees of Valinor. Now, one of the people that Jung encountered in the Red Book is an old man named Philemon. And actually, there's an interesting story of Philemon, where the name comes from. He and his wife, Baucis, I think it might be pronounced, they shelter the gods Mercury and Zeus, or Jupiter, not knowing they're gods. And for their hospitality, they're given a gift. And that gift is 
not only to survive a flood that encompasses the whole land, back to the flood imagery, but the gift is to be able to die at the same moment because they love each other so much. And when this couple dies, they're actually transformed into two trees, which is a story that I've always loved, and it wasn't until reading this that I realized that that was where the name Philemon was related. So who is Philemon? I'm not going to go a lot into who he is, but he is a very significant being, character, person throughout Jung's Red Book. But what I can say of him, he's an old man who provides guidance and teaches magic. Now, that sounds kind of familiar. Gandalf is also an old man who provides guidance and in many ways embodies and teaches forms of magic. Furthermore, Gandalf's first name, his original name, is Oloran, which is coming from the elvish Olor, which means to dream. But that does not refer to most human dreams, certainly not to the dreams of sleep. And in Quenya, Olos means vision or fantasy. This was an image that kind of blew me away when I came across it. For anyone familiar with Tolkien's works, the Eye of Sauron is a very powerful image. And when I was first looking through Jung's Red Book, I was very surprised to see an extremely similar eye looking back at me. And that, in a way, would have been enough of a coincidence. But let me first, just so we can really feel it, tell you about the Eye of Sauron. This is a vision that Frodo has of the eye in the mirror of Galadriel. But suddenly the mirror went altogether dark, as dark as if a hole had opened in the world of sight, and Frodo looked into emptiness. In the black abyss there appeared a single eye that slowly grew until it filled nearly all the mirror. So terrible was it that Frodo stood rooted, unable to cry out or to withdraw his gaze. The eye was rimmed with fire, but was itself glazed, yellow as a cat's, watchful and intent, and the black slit of its pupil opened on a pit, a window into nothing. And then another description of it. Darkness lay there under the sun. Fire glowed amid the smoke. Mount Doom was burning and a great reek rising. Then at last his gaze was held, this is Frodo's gaze, wall upon wall, battlement upon battlement, black, immeasurably strong, mountain of iron, gate of steel, tower of adamant, he saw it. Baradur, fortress of Sauron, all hope left him. And suddenly he felt the eye. There was an eye in the dark tower that did not sleep. He knew that it had become aware of his gaze. A fierce, eager will was there. It leapt towards him, almost like a finger he felt it searching him. Very soon it would nail him down, know exactly where he was. So that's Frodo's experience of the eye of evil. But as I was continuing to read through Jung's Red Book, I came across this. Nothing is more valuable to the evil one than his eye, since only through his eye can emptiness seize gleaming fullness. Because the emptiness lacks fullness, it craves fullness and its shining power, and it drinks it in by means of its eye, which is able to grasp the beauty and unsullied radiance of fullness. The emptiness is poor, and if it lacked its eye, it would be hopeless. It sees the most beautiful and wants to devour it in order to spoil it. So, one other thing that I wanted to touch on in relation to evil, and I could give an entire talk just on these two men's relationship to evil, but something that Jung says in the Red Book is, he who journeys to hell also becomes hell. Therefore, do not forget from whence you come. Do not be heroes. And 
this reminded me of this pivotal moment when Frodo is standing with the ring of power and he is about to destroy it. And this is told from Sam's perspective. He says, Then Frodo stirred and spoke in a clear voice, indeed with a voice clearer and more powerful than Sam had ever heard him use, and it rose above the throb and turmoil of Mount Doom, ringing in the roof and walls. I have come, he said, but I do not choose now to do what I came to do. I will not do this deed. The ring is mine. And suddenly, as he set it on his finger, he vanished from Sam's sight. And so there's this moment. It is the moment that everything is waiting on. And they have gone into the heart of hell. And at the pivotal moment, Frodo fails. He becomes what he's entered. And he can't actually go ahead and destroy the ring. And I wanted to show this illustration of Tolkien's, of Baradur, who was the only one that I could find that had Mount Doom in the background. And I also found it interesting because if you look at that doorway, it looks kind of familiar. It looks like before. But the last thing about this I wanted to say is that Jung writes in the Red Book, the scene of the mystery play is the heart of the volcano. And all of this in Tolkien's world takes place at the heart of a volcano when that transformation takes place. I will talk briefly about mandalas, which Jung started drawing without understanding what they were. His first mandala he drew January 16th of 1916. And the mandala is a symbol of the self. And as he writes, it's formation, transformation, the eternal mind's eternal recreation. And I didn't expect to find mandalas in Tolkien's artwork. And yet, I did. When he was nearing the end of his life, he would spend time just doodling on the backs of newspapers and envelopes. And this is what he would start to draw. And then, of course, he would attach them to his story, and they would become emblems and heraldic devices. But he wasn't at first drawing them to be that. He was just drawing patterns and symbols. And they actually, by being an emblem, of certain individuals in a way become symbols of different selves within his story. And then there's something else that actually Sean pointed out to me, which is that in a lot of Tolkien's drawings, they are organized around a central axis. And while this looks not like a mandala, imagine that you were to fly up over it and suddenly it seems to have a mandala shape that it has that central axis point. And he does that over and over. This is the original cover of The Hobbit, which also has this kind of patterning. Now, again, this is just something that I can only touch on briefly, but I wanted to talk about the encounter with the anima. And this is much of what Jung's Red Book is concerned with, meeting the soul, meeting his soul, and the forms that his soul takes. And there was an experience that he had that he writes about in Memories, Dreams, Reflections that when he was walking through the Swiss mountains once he encountered a young girl and they began walking together and he wrote, a strange feeling of fatefulness crept over me. She appeared at just this moment. I thought to myself, and she walks along with me as naturally as if we belonged together. Seen from within, this encounter was so weighty that it not only occupied my thoughts for days but has remained forever in my memory, like a shrine by the wayside. And this young girl became one of many women that represented his anima for him until he could really understand what that was. 
And something about reading this encounter made me think of a little story of Tolkien's that he wrote at the end of his life called Smith of Wooten Major. And just to simply describe it, it's the story of a man who was given a fairy star as a child, and he kind of gets it by accident, and he actually had swallowed it, and he coughs it up, and he catches it in his hand and smacks it onto his forehead for some strange reason. And again, as Sean pointed out to me, it's like his third eye opened as he had that star on his forehead. And what that fairy star allowed him to do was to go in and out of the realm of fairy, and he never really knew how he did it, but he would have these wanderings. I highly recommend reading this story. It's very short. It will probably only take you an hour, and it is absolutely exquisite. And in a way, it's one of the few really autobiographical tales that I think Tolkien wrote, and it was the last thing that he wrote, the last thing that he published, and I really think was describing what he had been going through. So a part of this story, he's been in and out of fairy many times, and he never really knows how he gets in there, but here's part of his experience. On the inner side, the mountains went down in long slopes, filled with the sound of bubbling waterfalls, and in great delight he hastened on. As he set foot upon the grass of the vale, he heard elven voices singing, and on a lawn beside a river bright with lilies he came upon many maidens dancing. Their speed and the grace and the ever-changing modes of their movements enchanted him, and he stepped forwards towards their ring. Suddenly they stood still, and a young maiden with flowing hair and kilted skirt came out to meet him. She laughed as she spoke to him, saying, You are becoming bold, Starbrow, are you not? Have you no fear what the queen might say if she knew of this? Unless you have her leave. He was abashed, for he became aware of his own thought and knew that she read it, that the star in his forehead was a passport to go wherever he wished, and now he knew that it was not. But she smiled as she spoke again. Come, now that you are here, you shall dance with me. And she took his hand and led him into the ring. There they danced together, and for a while he knew what it was to have the swiftness and the power and the joy to accompany her. For a while. But soon, as it seemed, they halted again, and she stooped and took up a white flower from before her feet, and she set it in his hair. Farewell now, she said. Maybe we shall meet again by the queen's leave. And on his last visit to Fairy, One day in that year, Smith was walking in the woods of outer Fairy, and it was autumn. Golden leaves were on the boughs, and red leaves were on the ground. Footsteps came behind him, but he did not heed them or turn round, for he was deep in thought. On that visit, he had received a summons and had made a far journey. Longer it seemed to him than any he had yet made. He was guided and guarded, but he had little memory of the ways that he had taken, for often he had been blindfolded by mist or shadow. Until at last he came to a high place under a night sky of innumerable stars. There he was brought before the queen herself. She wore no crown and had no throne. She stood there in her majesty and her glory, and all about her was a great host shimmering and glittering like the stars above. But she was taller than the points of their great spears, and upon her head there burned a white flame. She made a sign for him to approach, and trembling he stepped forward. A high, clear trumpet sounded, and behold, they were alone. He stood before her, and he did not kneel in courtesy, for he was dismayed and felt that for one so lowly all gestures were in vain. At length he looked up and beheld her face, and her eyes bent gravely upon him, and he was troubled and amazed, for in that moment he knew her again, the fair maid of the green veil, the dancer on whose feet the flowers sprang. She smiled, seeing his memory, and drew towards him, and they spoke long together, for the most part without words, and he learned many things in her thought, some of which gave him joy, 
and others filled him with grief. Then he knelt, and she stooped and laid her hand on his head, and a great stillness came upon him, and he seemed to be both in the world and in fairy, and also outside them and surveying them, so that he was at once in bereavement and in ownership and in peace. When after a while the stillness passed, he raised his head and stood up. The dawn was in the sky, and the stars were pale, and the queen was gone. Far off he heard the echo of a trumpet in the mountains. The high field where he stood was silent and empty, and he knew that his way now led back to bereavement. And I feel like the story of Tolkien's, not only does it illustrate his wanderings in and out of fairy, but I think it's his encounter with his own soul, with his anima, who he does not recognize as the queen of his being at first. And then it is in this very last encounter, at this moment of loss in a way, that he realizes who she is and what he has been seeking. And it seemed in a way kind of like an echo of Jung's own encounter with his anima, who takes many forms in the Red Book. Also, something that's just in a footnote of the Red Book is Jung saying the anima is elf-like, i.e. only partially human. She can also become a white bird, a dove, or a gull. And there is an elf in the Silmarillion. Her name is Elwing, and she has this gift of becoming a white bird. And she is actually the mate of Erendil, who we read that poem about. And she doesn't journey with him on all his journeys as a star, but whenever he returns, she turns into this white bird and she flies to meet him. So... I am not equipped to talk about the transcendent function. I am not a depth psychologist. But as far as I understand, the transcendent function bridges the conscious and the unconscious. And it is a symbol. It transcends time and conflict. And yet it is common to both the conscious and the unconscious. And it offers a synthesis, a new synthesis between them. Jung writes in the Red Book of the symbol, the symbol is the word that goes out of the mouth, that one does not simply speak, but that rises out of the depths of the self as a word of power and great need and places itself unexpectedly on the tongue. If one accepts the symbol, it is as if a door opens leading into a new room whose existence one previously did not know. And Tolkien wrote in On Fairy Stories of stories, such stories open a door on other time. And if we pass through, only for a moment, we stand outside our own time, outside time itself maybe. So... What I felt reading these two together is that what they were doing was actually entering into a realm, that they were going to a place, and that whether you call it the unconscious or fairy or imagination, I think they were entering the same place. I think they were walking perhaps, if not parallel, maybe at times even the same paths through that place, and that the way we enter there is through symbol, is through myth, is through story. That imagination is not a human capacity. What we may call the organ of imagination is what allows us to participate in this realm, but that this is actually a realm that is both separate from us and within us and encompassing everything, and that we can enter into it through these different means of awakening the imagination. Jung writes, if you look into yourselves, you will see on the other hand the nearby as far off and infinite, since the world of the inner is as infinite as the world of the outer. This inner world is truly infinite, in no way poorer than the outer one. Humanity lives in two worlds. So 
how can these two inform each other's work? Where is it possible to go from here? Jung advised that each person should make their own red book and that we can return to it like a sanctuary and like a cathedral because between its pages is our soul. And Tolkien's own red book, what he gave to the world in the form of the Lord of the Rings and what he would have liked to give in so many other stories that he never managed to finish, that book, it's a text that's treated by many people as a sacred text. It's a text that people return to again and again. And I've been amazed at the different people I've met over the years who tell me of the person that they read it out loud with for the first time or that they read it every year, like returning to a Bible in a way that it's taken on this role of a sacred text. Because it, it too, like creating your own red book, is an invitation to enter into imagination. And when Tolkien was first coming up with the idea of creating his own mythology, he wanted to make it in such a way that it left space for others to fill it out further with their own art, with their own stories. He said, I would draw some of the great tales in fullness and leave many only placed in the scheme and sketched. This was in a letter to someone. The cycles should be linked to a majestic whole and yet leave scope for other minds and hands, wielding paint and music and drama. Absurd. And something that Jung said in the Red Book, just to finish, he said, what was most essential was not interpreting or understanding the fantasies, but experiencing them. And I think that's what they're both calling us to do, to experience the imagination, to experience fantasy. So I will leave it there. Thank you so much for your attention. That's Becca Tarnas, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. We'll be continuing with the question and answer session with Becca Tarnas in just a moment. Stay with us. about 45 minutes for dialogue, discussion, questions, anywhere we really want to take this. I so hope to learn from all of you. And yeah, thank you for being here and listening. Um, I'm so inspired by your presentation and I'm curious, are you creating your own Red Book? Um, I haven't started, you could say. As I was doing this, I was feeling like I have to do something and I don't know what form that will take. I did have an experience while reading the Red Book really early on when I was reading it. I think I was tired and I closed my eyes for a second and I had this experience of falling into a pond and swimming down, just swimming down and down until I broke through a new surface. So instead of hitting the bottom, I came through the top I came up above the waves and I saw this white shoreline with trees growing on it and I just started to swim towards it 
and interestingly there are descriptions in both the red book this was before i got to this part and at the very end really the last page of lord of the rings that describe being on the sea and going towards white shores and when i came to it in the red book i started crying this was several weeks after i had this experience and i don't know where that leads but i maybe hope to find out just cuz you're you and we're us and i don't know if you know this or not just talking about saturn in both of their charts well i don't know jung's chart as well as i know tolkien's tolkien had a grand trine of saturn trine venus trine the neptune pluto conjunction of the turn of the century and he also has saturn squaring his mercury the saturn square mercury you can really see coming through just in how he rewrote and rewrote and rewrote and niggled as he called it and the detail that he focused on and put into the languages but in that as far as in that grand trine there's definitely a lot to unpack there you can see the saturn pluto in his depiction of war both that he experienced it that he lived through both world wars he was writing the lord of the rings basically as world war 2 was unfolding and since it was published in the 50s people actually thought that he was maybe writing it as, a, as an allegory but he had actually been writing it before the events unfolded and somewhere in here i have this quote from cs lewis cs lewis and tolkien were best friends and lewis said these things were not devised these things within tolkien stories were not devised to reflect any particular situation in the real world it was the other way round real events began horribly to conform to the pattern he had freely invented so you can see the horrible depiction of war and slaughter and the presence of the shadow they both use the term the shadow to describe in tolkien's case to describe evil in jung's case of course it's much more complicated but both of their work is about facing about confronting the shadow and they even called it that both with a capital s but with neptune in there it's coming through in imagination imagery and so on and i love how wh auden describes his work he said here are beauties that pierce like swords and burn like cold iron and that kind of i feel just captures that grand trine of venus saturn the sword the burning cold iron but it's coming through the imagination and how powerful it is being the plutonic i had goosebumps for probably the last 20 minutes mm-hmm. of the talk i think once we started getting to the eye i have so many questions but i have two and the first one maybe just a footnote it to say it and then move on to my second one but my first one when you brought up the two eyes and you started reading about either Tolkien or Jung's description of the eye I was wondering if you had thought about the eye and self-reflective consciousness hmm. about the relationship between those two and their experiences of evil or shadow I was curious about that mm-hmm. I found myself and even now being on the verge of tears and feeling actually a lot of emotion around what you've shared and I'm recognizing that part of what I'm feeling is as if in my life the imagination has been stolen from me because of the emphasis on the real and the rational and that I have to get to a point where I just give myself the permission 
to engage my imagination as a valuable place and how I'm wishing I had a culture around me that valued it so that the shadows of life would um, every image that you showed us was beautiful and I'm just struck by the power of beauty to be able to help us move through the difficulties of life mm. and how connected each of these two people and you are to places of wild and detailed imagination and how they help hold us and how real they may be and it just i feel emotional about it i feel i feel loss i feel a sadness and also grateful that i'm still alive to maybe have the opportunity to reclaim it so i'm just curious about that you know and kind of the modern world so those were the two just putting that out there to you yeah i'll start with the latter since it's so present and emotional immediately i thought of one line that is in young's red book where he's speaking with philemon and they're talking about magic and philemon says it doesn't matter if the magic dies out with me because it is always reborn in every new generation and fairy is always there it's timeless both Jung and Tolkien agree that this realm, whatever it is, is a timeless realm. It is outside of time and can always be accessed. And there are many pathways into that realm. And for me, just knowing that someone is wandering in it is a comfort. And what Tolkien says, a great part of what fairy is, is desire. In that quote I read earlier, there's the desire to commune with other beings that is at the heart of fairy, the desire to survey space and time. And I feel that if one desires enough to enter into that, then it's possible. So I would say there's always hope. <laughs> I feel like we could talk about that forever. <laughs> but your first you were asking about the eye and oh yes self-reflection something about the symbol of the eye which the first time i read lord of the rings i was like i don't really know what this eye is it just kind of appeared and i wasn't sure what it was referring to and it only really becomes clearer as you go through the thousand plus pages and it's much clearer if you watch the film what the eye is but it is an eye that never looks inward it is an eye that is always looking out. It's always grasping, seeking, moving outward. And I think that that's very much like what Jung has in the Red Book as well, that it drinks in by means of the eye. So it's always going outward and not turning in on itself. And I think it's kind of interesting that the whole premise of Lord of the Rings is taking a part of the evil power back to itself and when it is brought back to the heart of where it was made and unmade it is completely destroyed so it's almost like by taking and in many ways a ring is like a representation of an eye and by bringing the eye back in and turning it in on itself evil is unmade so i guess i would say to that that the relationship between the eye and evil is that it, it can't look at itself and if it does, then it is no more. 
I was struck by the imagery that you showed. A lot of Tolkien's paintings have gates, gateways, yes. corridors, signifying that there was a threshold. Yeah. A threshold that you cross. And a lot of them reminded me of tarot cards, too. Mm. There was the fool and a lot of the symmetrical imagery. It was very archetypal. But I'm just thinking about your relationship astrologically with Tolkien as he provides a gateway for you to go into that realm very profoundly. If you could just talk some more, or if you've done a comparison chart with yeah. Tolkien. At one point I did do my synastry with Tolkien's, and I honestly cannot remember a single thing right now, which is kind of funny. I do have some common aspects with him. We both have Venus-Neptune, which is very much kind of the romantic imagination. We also both have Venus-Saturn, which kind of brings the bittersweet quality in. I feel like Lord of the Rings is a perfect story because its ending is bittersweet. And if you haven't read it, I won't say why. But I think that those aspects called to me. The Venus-Neptune, so much carried by the elves, it's these immortal beings that are exquisitely beautiful, and yet they create and preserve beauty, the preservation being very Saturnian, but that's also in many ways their fault, and they have a role in Tolkien's stories almost as a warning that we shouldn't embalm, we shouldn't preserve, but rather recognize that all things must pass, and really what this story is he wanted to write of middle earth and he desired to tell of its beginning and middle and yet the story that came through and that really impacted the world was actually of its ending and passing away and i think that very much resonated with my own venus saturn neptune so that's part of it yeah you said that a lot of tolkien's works have thresholds doorways and something else that's significant is that a lot of his images have bridges and other means to enter and exit the scene. There's this one, and they comment on it in the writing in this book, that the bridge meets the frame. The bridge meets the frame, and it's almost like we're being invited to cross that bridge. In this case, both the woods and underground, which is both symbols of entering fairy. So yeah, I think it was a conscious theme for him. I loved your talk, and I've got all these exciting ideas that kind of came through. And a couple were, when you mentioned that there was that moment when Tolkien first read the, was it when he read the word Arendelle? Mm -hmm. That he had the shiver, the, the shiver mm -hmm. feeling. And I thought about that, and I thought how amazing it is that sometimes the, some inkling of a, of, of something that's, Good word. Important, yeah. <laughs> Something that's important, um, that's large, can come in this tiny way mm. where you don't, we don't really know at all what it is. It's just kind of a, a second glance or a wow or something like that. And to speak to what Lydia said, how difficult it is sometimes to make space to allow those little shivers to unfold. Mm. And then I also thought, at the same time, and at the same time, here are these two men going into this realm that has so many parallels. And it makes me think about the, I guess, extent and richness and power of collective unconscious, mm. that, that perhaps there are 
elements of well, I mean, that's what collective unconscious means. We share it all, right? So, so maybe there's a way in which, in which there are common kinds of realms that people have had in human experience. Maybe that's part of why we have these common images between us or mm-hmm. common places where we might go. But I wondered if you'd reflected at all about the collective unconscious, you know, as it plays into the fact that these two men seem to have come to similar places and similar images and similar kinds of experiences about the realities of the inner life. I very much feel that what Tolkien called Fairy Jung called the collective unconscious mm-hmm. and that it's one place, perhaps, that it's not personal and that anyone can enter into it and potentially encounter the same things and another name for it would be the archetypal realm what i found kind of striking about this project was not only was i seeing all of the planetary archetypes within this realm but it was almost like if you could think of the planetary archetypes as gods as the highest gods they were encountering not just the same gods but the same daemons and maybe angels or lesser beings i don't want to say lesser but more even approachable specific beings like philemon and gandalf like these experiences of seeing evil as an eye and all these other similarities that it's almost like they're further refractions of the archetypes and yet they're still archetypes if that makes sense and that it's all just within this realm which isn't separate from this it's informing it it's breathing into it it's suffusing it and so on so i very much feel like it's the same thing thanks for the talk it was uh, very rich and very wonderful i just wanted to one small comment and then a, a question i was very struck by the eye and what immediately came to me was the nsa you know the national. <laughs> I mean, this eye is very much alive in today's world. Isn't the character of the eye that it totally annihilates any privacy? That anything anybody does becomes visible publicly. So that just occurred, you know, to me that um, yeah, it's very much with us and something we're struggling with in a very real world. Wait, does that resonate? I I think about a year ago, I read an article, and I can't remember where it was published, where someone said, the NSA is the Eye of Sauron, it's here (laughs) among us. But I can't recall who it was that said that. And the the metaphor of the web is interesting, Mm. too, because the word web both has very positive connotations in terms of the web of life, Mm -hmm. but it can also be a negative, something that captures... Mm-hmm. everything and I think of the spider mm-hmm. you know Shelob once again the way you know that you can't escape the tentacles of the of this yeah. this beast and that's devouring us so those mythic levels I think are something that's very much with us I just wanted to ask a question about you've done a beautiful job of bringing out some of the convergences I just wondered if you had any experience of aspects in which you felt Jung and Tolkien and your experiences of them and their imaginal worlds was very distinct one way or another. I mean, I think that in, you know, in a general way, through Tolkien, I think this Anglo-Saxon 
background somehow is is very much there. The old bards, the the ancient poets, with his involvement with the language and the language of trees, which is part of um, you know the first poetic language that Robert Graves talks about mm. in the the White Goddess and so forth. Whereas it seems to me that Jung, you know, identifies so much with the medieval. Mm. mind and there's a stronger presence of the perhaps you know the biblical tradition they seem to have a slightly different relation to language in this respect Tolkien's writes poetry mm. you know and Jung's rhetoric is almost more biblical mm. you know so I just wondered if if you had in your own felt experience of the works you know aspects of those kinds of things yeah, I, absolutely. I mean, what I was presenting here were the similarities. And as I said, when I first started, I kind of despaired. I thought, there's going to be nothing similar at all. I'm doomed. And I'm going down a dead end. But so reading through the Red Book, of course, there are major differences. And I think for Jung, going into the shadow and staying there is much more important. And I think that while they're both confronting the shadow in a certain way, Jung is really seeing that good and evil are within everyone all the way up through God. And I don't think Tolkien would hold that in the same way. They're both, I was very struck by how Christian Jung's Red Book is. And while Tolkien's published writings do not contain Christianity, he was a very devout Roman Catholic and had to have what he wrote somehow reflect that. He said that The Lord of the Rings is a Christian tale, but unconsciously so. But it was conscious in the um, revising. And he didn't want to represent within his story a religion of this world but in a way he wanted to convey more subtly the ethic and the very nature of God as he saw and loved God. I don't think that in reading the opening of the Silmarillion, which is about the creation of the world, it's certainly a dialogue between light and dark, but God, the one God who he calls Eru or Iluvatar, which means the one, is an all good, all light being and the shadow is brought in to creation in a way through I'm almost talking myself out of what I'm saying now because <laughs> the way that evil the way the shadow enters into the creation of the world is through one of the beings that the one has created so the way Tolkien's world begins is the one sings into being these other beings called the Ainur and those other beings then aid Iluvatar in singing the cosmos into being. And it's this very beautiful scene. And there's one, Melkor, who has wandered alone, separate from the thought of Iluvatar in the void. And it seems that the void coexists or pre-existed Iluvatar, the light of Iluvatar. And the void is defined as what the light of the face of Iluvatar has not yet turned to. And this one, Aina, is wandering through the darkness of that void and creating his own thoughts and when he is participating in this singing he sings his own melody which then brings discord and so the discord is brought into the very heart of creation in that way 
So on the one hand, you could say that maybe the light and shadow do go all the way back to the beginning. But I think Tolkien held a much more positive view of God in that way. Not po- I'm not saying that quite how I mean it, but in that Jung really saw that evil was present in God and that evil had to be present in God to explain that it was present in the world. So I don't know if that helps answer. I had never actually wanted to read The Lord of the Rings just because I had read The Hobbit, but just the depth and uh, complexity just kind of overwhelmed me and I was like content to read Harry Potter and the Chronicles of Narnia but I now have a desire to read this so thank you very much for that my <laughs> my question is in, in these other ones too there's an element of magic and revolution against a sort of evil empire when you mentioned how the binary between light and darkness or good and evil is complexified when the hero succumbs to that darkness or uh enemy. I'm wondering, well, just to give you an excuse to talk about that a little more, and also, you know, when we're at PCC learning to, you know, be those same kind of agents of change or take that journey to Mordor and throw the ring in the fire, what kind of special advice do you have for us in our own little magical revolutions? I think that the thing that I've really taken from Tolkien's work is that he isn't telling a hero's journey, he's telling the journey of many heroes. And if there's one thing that he really emphasizes, the first book of The Lord of the Rings is called The Fellowship of the Ring, and what he's really emphasizing is community and working together, and that it's not a single person that can take on any of these immense tasks that we face. And you'll find when you read Lord of the Rings that Frodo doesn't go into Mordor alone, and that's important. He goes in with his closest friend by his side. And actually, there's one thing that I left out of the talk that I'm going to use you as an excuse to tie in, because it's one of the most profound moments in the Lord of the Rings, and it's in many ways tied to something that's in the Red Book. So to put it in the context of the Red Book, Jung encounters this god named Isdubar, and he is speaking to him of Western science and disenchantment. And by telling a god of the old world about the disenchanted European modern world, he mortally wounds this god, and he is witnessing the god dying. And there's nothing he seems to be able to do. He cannot go and get help. The god is huge and he can't carry him. And then he suddenly has this idea. He convinces the god that he is actually a fantasy. And by doing that, at first the god is very resistant. And Jung says to him, My prince, powerful one, listen, a thought came to me that might save us. I think that you are not at all real, but only a fantasy. And Isdubar says, I'm terrified by this thought. It is murderous. Do you even mean to declare me unreal now that you have lamed me so pitifully? And Jung responds, Perhaps I have not made myself clear enough and have spoken too much in the language of the Western lands. I do not mean to say that you were not real at all, of course, but only as real as a fantasy. If you could accept this, much would be gained. Isdubar says, What would be gained by this? You are a tormenting devil. Jung says, 
pitiful one, I will not torment you. The hand of the doctor does not seek to torment even if it causes grief. Can you really not accept that you are a fantasy? Isdabar says, Woe betide me. In what magic do you want to entangle me? Should it help me if I take myself for a fantasy? Jung says, You know that the name one bears means a lot. You also know that one often gives the sick new names to heal them. For with the new name, they come by a new essence. Your name is your essence, Isdabar. You are right. Our priests also say this. Jung, so you are prepared to admit that you are a fantasy? Isdabar, if it helps, yes. And so he admits that he's a fantasy. And through that, Jung says, a way has been found. You have become light, lighter than a feather. Now I can carry you. I put my arms round him and lift him up from the ground. He is lighter than air, and I struggle to keep my feet on the ground since my load lifts me up into the air. So by turning the god into a fantasy, basically by, in a way, incorporating him within himself, the god becomes light and he's able to carry him. And he writes, Thus my god found salvation. He was saved precisely by what one would actually consider fatal, namely by declaring him a figment of the imagination. So what does this have to do with your question? Probably my favorite moment, if I can really say that, in The Lord of the Rings, and I talked about this in a talk I gave at Burning Man and burst into tears, so I will try and not do that when I read this. But they are, Sam and Frodo are climbing up Mount Doom, and Frodo has lost all his strength. And he reaches this point where he is having to crawl. And it is so pitiful for Sam to watch that he begins to cry. And Sam looked at him and wept in his heart, but no tears came to his stinging eyes. They've been without food or water for days. He says, I said I'd carry him if it broke my back, he muttered, and I will. Come, Mr. Frodo, he cried. I can't carry it for you, it being the ring. I can't carry it for you, but I can carry you and it as well. So up you get. Come on, Mr. Frodo, dear. Sam will give you a ride. Just tell him where to go, and he'll go. As Frodo clung upon his back, arms loosely about his neck, legs clasped firmly under his arms, Sam staggered to his feet, and then to his amazement, he felt the burden light. He had feared that he would have barely strength to lift his master alone, and beyond that he had expected to share in the dreadful dragging weight of the accursed ring. But it was not so. Whether because Frodo was so worn by his long pains, wound of knife and venomous sting, and sorrow, fear, and homeless wandering, or because some gift of final strength was given to him, Sam lifted Frodo with no more difficulty than if he were carrying a hobbit child pigaback in some romp on the lawns or hayfields of the Shire. He took a deep breath and started off. I feel like what that shows is that no one can make that journey alone and that we all have to carry each other at some point. So thank you so much for coming. That was Becca Tarnas from a presentation she gave at 
the California Institute for Integral Studies, where she is a doctoral student. And that's about it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, have a wonderful week. And imagine a wonderful new world we can share together. <laughs>